I'm sure you've noticed that there are some things that happen in life that change us forever. Am I right? You're moving along and minding your own business and you fall in love. That changes everything, right? You get married. I mean, when Karen met me, it just changed her life forever. You know, you're working at your job or whatever, and you go, oh, now this is the thing I want to do. Yet, just have those defining moments in your life along the way where you're never quite the same as you were before it happened. Almost like it rewrites our internal operating system. It just rewrites our identity. Those are neat moments. Those are very cool times. That appears to be exactly what happened with a man in the Bible named James. He wrote the book, the New Testament book that bears his name, and uh, which is precisely where we are on our Through the Bible series, which we've been working on apparently since Pastor Christian was a boy. So please turn in your Bibles to... He slow-pitched it last week. I mean, I'm just going to say. So So turn in your Bibles to the book of James, if you will. And on our way there, let's, let's invite the Lord. Lord, it's because of you that we're here. Nobody came to hear me talk. They came for you, Lord. And some are here hoping that you even exist. Some are here wondering if any of this is even true. God, I I just thank you for them here today. I thank you that by your sovereign hand, you carved a path into this place for them today, for us all. So we just stop and, and give you our hearts and give you our minds and If this is one of those defining days, for some, let it be today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we move through this Through the Bible series, we look at one book at a time, and today we're in the book of James, and as most of you know, many of you know, I like to start by developing some sense of context so that we know we have some idea of what's going on so that we can understand the words that we read. The context of the book of James, I think, has four major points of interest. And first, the very first verse, which Christian read for us just moments ago, uh, tells us that very plainly that that was written by James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot more to that than meets the eye, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But there are five or six different men in the New Testament who go by the name of James. And uh, this one in particular, it is broadly agreed that this James was the, ha- the brother of our Lord Jesus. He was in the same family. Half-brother, really. Same same mother, different fathers. Am I right? But he was actually in the family, in the household of Joseph and Mary. Same mom, different dads. You know, uh, many of you know uh, uh, my cherished friend who passed away in 2012, my closest friend on the earth for so many years, was Pastor A. Stephen from India. And uh, such a beloved friend to me. And many of you know, since he came here many times, how very dark his skin was, right? I mean, he was just the darkest, 
skinned person among them that I've, that I've ever had the privilege of being friends with. And I'm so not dark. I don't know if you've noticed or not. But so, on, uh, you know, and he would come here and I would go to India, as many of you know, back and forth many, many times. And whenever we were together, we loved to do this thing when we were introducing ourselves to someone for the first time. We would introduce ourselves and then we would say, and we're brothers. Yeah, and we'd just wait for that moment, you know. And the, the, the head would kind of cock this way and we say, we say same father, different mothers. I guess it was fun for us anyway. We had a blast with it. But this, this guy here is James. The author is the half-brother of, of Jesus. Much more on that later. Verse 1 goes to tell us to whom it was written. It says, To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. What are these tribes? This is a reference to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout the region by persecution. The Romans, as you may know, were pretty much equal opportunity persecutors, weren't they? That they were, they were just pretty much capriciously persecuted any religious group that posed any kind of a threat to the sovereignty of the emperor. And in this case, the, the, the Jews had been scattered out of Rome throughout the nations, and among them were Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, actually, and uh, that's who he's talking about, these 12 tribes that have been scattered through the nations. He's talking to Jewish believers to say, how do you know he's not just talking to Jewish people? Well, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he makes it very plain when he says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, show no favoritism, and that's the thing that would separate a Jewish person from a Jewish believer, that they're believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with a recognition of Jesus of Nazareth as long-awaited Messiah. And so there and in four other places in the book of James, he refers to his audience as brothers. And so it was written to Jewish believers. And these were, these were Jewish believers who were wandering about the region and they had no Bible. It is, uh, since James was written somewhere either in or near 45 A.D. It makes it the earliest written book of the New Testament. So these believers were wandering around. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to go by. There was no Philippians or Romans or Revelation to go by. They were just walking it out, trying to figure it out. And into this, into this environment, James wrote this book. And as such, it's really not an evangelistic message at all, is it? It's written to believers. It's written to believers, for believers. It's written to people who had already found their way to the cross. Was it written to you? Let me say that again. This book was written... I want you to consider this. This book was written to people who had encountered the cross of Jesus Christ. Was it written to you? This book is a penetratingly practical book. There are 108 verses that speak directly to the matter of the basics of living the Christian life. It tells you, here's how you do it. Very practical. 
You know, when I became a Christian and began getting serious in my early 20s, I, I was looking, I was reading my Bible, and I noticed something about my Bible, and that is that there were two places that appeared to be more worn than others. And one was Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And there Jesus speaks in no uncertain terms about what it means to follow him. Am I right? And the other section was the book of James. Uh, and, and there also he speaks very practically without apology about the things that I would need to change in my life in order to become serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a young believer, I wanted to know, how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? And so it's no surprise that the Sermon on the Mount and James were the most popular places for me to visit as a young believer. Now, it wasn't until sitting in a seminary class much later, uh, or several years later, I should say, that I heard a professor, one of my professors, say that it is likely that the book of James was actually a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And then I went, oh, that makes a whole bunch of sense to me. And so the book of James is very practical. It is so practical that Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. He was even objected to it being in the Bible. Martin Luther, who loved theology so much, he said there's no, there's no regeneration, there's no atonement, there, there's no, none of the deep theology, there's not even a single reference to Holy Spirit in the book of James, and so he was troubled that it was there because it is so intensely practical. And James seems to have left the matters of great theology to Paul and to Peter and to John as they wrote what they wrote, while his mission was to talk to wandering believers about how to live their lives. And that's what the book of James is, is really all about. Okay, So the key concepts of the book of James are really five, as I, as I study the book and have for many years now. They're really five. And when, when I list these five key concepts from the book of James, I want you to think of them as kind of background apps or background programs that run on your device or your laptop, right? I mean, because when you pull out your phone and you see all the little pictures of stuff you can do, right? and you press the button and it makes it do that and you feel so powerful, am I right? Hello? Right? Checking whether some of you are so tempted to grab your device right now because you're so hopelessly addicted and you, and you, but you can press a single button and it can, you can make it do what you want it to do, right? Well, it does that because there are background applications or background programs that you really don't see that are making the whole thing possible, right? Just trust me. Just nod, and I'll move on. If you don't nod, I'll call up an expert, and I'll explain it to you, okay? So there's other background. And, and what I, when I think about these five key concepts from the book of James, I see them as, as sort of fundamental realities of the Christian life that are meant to be there, and they serve as the background, the foundation for everything else we do as believers. You get what I'm saying? So I want you to think of these, 
not kind of one at a time, but this is a description of the formation of the foundation of your life as a believer. And he gives five of them. The first one he gives is that we are to have joy in the midst of trials. He starts out, doesn't he? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Who does that? Hello? You know, you're facing trials. He says, consider it pure joy. And then if you read on, he tells you why we should be joyful. He says, because it's in times of trial that we seem to cooperate with God on a level where he can really do some work inside of us, right? He says there's something that happens in trial that does not happen in ease. Now, let's remember who he was talking to here. He was talking to Jewish believers who had been expelled from their homes by persecution. That's the level of persecution, that these, the level of trial that these people were enduring. You know, when we think of trial, we think that they just bumped up our cell phone plan or something like that, right? Oh, my gosh. Did you ever get in the double drive through line at McDonald's and the guy who was there after you got go first? That's persecution, isn't it? I, it's be- it's because of the Jesus bumper sticker you were wear, uh, had on your car that they did that to you. This is persecution in America. These people were being expelled from their homes and threatened with death. Imagine right now that if some military guard came in here with weaponry and said, you all need to leave and you need to leave your homes right now because of your faith and not only do you, can you not go home, but if you're not out of the state by tomorrow, you will be killed. Imagine that scenario, and then your pastor is James, and he follows when they leave by stepping up here and says, this is great. This is fantastic. Consider it pure joy, brothers, because something can happen in your life now that could never happen in a life of ease. And he says, this is the first characteristic or quality of the Christian life that he really thinks ought to, be, ought to be part of the program, the foundation of every believer. The second, he talks about overcoming temptation. As Christian read those verses, did you notice that there, he, he really describes the process of temptation from being tempted to being killed through your temptation. It leads to death. And I want you to notice that at the heart of the the, the heart of the process of temptation is a strategy of the devil called isolation. This is at the heart of Satan's plan for your life, is to isolate you. If you look at chapter 1, verse 14 of James, it says, it says but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. This is the key to the devil's plan to destroy you is to drag you away and get you alone. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to sin when nobody's watching, when you're alone? Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to rationalize patterns of sin in your life when you're not in fellowship with other believers? That's the devil's plan. It's at the core of his very plan. Keep in mind who he was talking to when he talks about isolation. He was talking to that first century church. Has anybody read Acts chapter 2 yet? How often were they together? Every day they were together. So to these people, to people who were together every day, he said, watch out, you don't get isolated to once a week because that's death. 
Hello? He says, watch out. You don't get pulled out and isolated to something like once a week because that would be death. The writer of Hebrews said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Man, this is, this is God's strategy, or I'm sorry, this is Satan's strategy for the American church. It's to isolate us. Make us individual chair sitters, consumers, where we don't need each other. How many here today, you're here today and you're like one out of seven Sundays or one out of three or one out of four, whatever, and you came today because, because there wasn't another recreational opportunity that seemed more appealing. So you better get your church on, right? Hello? How many of you are not in a small group? How many of you are trying to live this out without being in heart-to-heart relationship with other believers? How many of you are in a small group but you don't go? Or when you go, you don't dial in? How many of you guys are in men's groups, are in Ironman groups, accountability, face-to-face groups, but you don't go? But if you go, you really kind of hold back on what's really happening. This is the devil's plan for you. If you read it, that when he's dragged away, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I just want to tell you that when you allow yourself to be isolated from the body, you are giving permission for Satan to tempt you. You are inviting him to overpower you. And if you think that you can handle the devil's strategy on your own, you are absolutely defying what the Word of God clearly says you're outside of the will of God. And you need to repent. And come into fellowship. My home group is meeting this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, in my home. There will be other groups that are meeting throughout the week. You should come. 4897 Neff Road, big long gravel driveway that disappears into a cornfield. Just go. To stop by that board out there in the lobby. If you don't like the way I look, pick somebody more attractive. Their pictures are there for you to pick from. I'm just saying, beloved, if you're out of fellowship, you are inviting Satan to overpower you. And James is saying that one of the background apps ought to be the power to live victoriously over Satan's temptation. He also says one of the background apps should be overcoming the deadly sin of partiality. To these scattered believers, James, op- James then goes on to say that judging anyone by outward appearances leads to death. Now, in the case of the book of James, he uses the example of judging people by the clothes they wear or the wealth that they seem to have, but he could just as well have referred to the color of their skin, couldn't he? He's saying that if we, the words he says, he says that if we do this, if we judge people on the basis of external appearance, then his words are, we become judges with evil thoughts. Those strong. Judges with evil thoughts. Who among us 
isn't a place to judge anyone. Who, who among us would have thrown the first stone? Who, who can judge but God alone? And he says, when we treat each other on the basis of external appearance rather than finding out who's inside, then we become judges with evil thoughts. May I remind you of the words of our Lord Jesus who said, do not judge and you will not be judged for with the measure that you judge, it will be measured to you. The fourth uh, app, background app that James just assumes we would have is the ability to control our tongues. James says that a fourth background app that should always be running in the life of a true believer is one that controls our tongues. That are, He says in our tongues we have power. We have power to bless and we have power to curse. And it is the calling of every believer to be a blessing. To bless. And if you are not consistently a blessing in your speech, then you are outside of the will of God and you also need to repent. You're wasting your words. Look at this power. It's like throwing money on the ground if you criticize. Some of you are stirred right now and you want to repent and you should. And I want to tell you this, that when you repent of this, would you also ask God to heal you? Because a person is like that for a reason. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm just going to trash everybody I think of today. They're like that because something is wounded. Something happened. They need healing. It's a defense, isn't it? And so when you repent of that, would you say, God, would, would you come by your Holy Spirit and just touch that place in me? And then the fifth app is what he calls faith without works is dead. James says that clearly believing in God is not faith. It's just common sense. He says that the person who just believes in God has elevated himself to the level of a demon because even the demons believe and tremble. He says that when a Christian truly believes in God, that he will also earnestly and sacrificially follow God. That following comes from a heart. There's a life to be lived. If a person, he says, says they have faith, but they have no life to show it, it says they're just empty words. And he said that person's faith is dead. That person has no faith at all just reminds me of the old song, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there, right? These are the five key concepts that make up the core of the book of James and really make up the call of how we're called to live our lives. We call that orthopraxis. It's the right way to live. These five realities are meant to be running in the background of all of our lives. They're practical. They're penetrating. And James says they're non-negotiable. That's it. Okay, aren't you glad you came today? Let's get to the hot spot. The one spot in the, in the book, you know, that I like to just pray and say, God, what do you want to say to us? What, what, what do you have to say to us right now? And I think the hot spot is James chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read it together, church. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom! That's hot. There's a lot more to that 
than meets the eye. I really like the way the New American Standard says it better. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant, he says. I remember the day in my Greek class in seminary in 1978 when I learned that word. It's my favorite Greek word in in the whole vocabulary. It is the word doulos, and it means bond service. I want to start a band, and I want to call it doulos. But it's a word that means bond servant. And I remember when Dr. Rezegi was explaining this to us eager students, and I remember just being overcome by the the sense of what it meant to be a bond servant. I remember silently praying in that wooden chair. I remember, I remember just saying, God, that's what I want to be. I want to be your bond servant. That's why I'm sitting in this chair. I want to be your bond servant. Because a bond servant was different than an indentured servant. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about some of the Old Testament laws with servanthood slash slavery? Remember that? And remember how I told you that, that Hebrew law said that every seven years that a servant had to be offered his freedom? Do you remember that? And that with his freedom, the master was also incumbent on the master to give him some startup money so that he could go off and get a good start. Do you remember that? Well, that's true. So every seven years, he said, there you may go free if you like. But it's true also that many of those servants chose not to exercise that option. They chose to stay with their master. In fact, Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6 says, But if the slave plainly says... I love my master, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So the slave is offered his freedom, but he says, but I love my master. I, lo- I don't want to go. I love my master. I want to stay here with my master. Then a mark was put upon that person, and they were no longer an indentured servant. They became a bond servant. They were there by choice. They were there because they loved their master. I want to ask you, why are you serving God? Because you have to, because you want to. Why, why does this teaching even bother you about overcoming temptation or being out of fellowship or the control of your tongue? Why does this even stir you? Because you fear the prospect of hell or because you, you love your master and that you want for yourself everything that your master wants for you. There's a big difference, isn't there? Are you an indentured servant? Or are you a bondservant? James said he's a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that just brings up a huge question. How did he get there? Has anybody read the Gospels? Anybody here? Just Sue? Seriously? For real? Kathy? Your gospel, you know the story about Jesus? You know that part? Hello? You read the Gospels? 
Do you notice as you're reading through that James in Matthew chapter 13, I think, it says that James is the next brother to Jesus. But then in John chapter 7, it says that his brothers didn't believe in Jesus. So how did he get from being the little brother who didn't believe? I mean, you got you to just think about how tough it'd be to have Jesus as your older brother, right? Hello? I mean, his bed's always made, right? And his plate is always picked up and in the dishwasher. And can you imagine being on a soccer team with him? What a ball hog. Boom, score! Right? I mean, come on. Be tough. Jesus is your big brother. Sitting around the table, and Mary says, Boys, your homework done? James goes, Jesus says, Mom, I know everything. That'd be tough, right? Well, that's James. So how do you get from not believing? I mean, he must have sat around that table and heard Joseph talk about the events surrounding Jesus' birth, the visions, the dream. And still James did not believe. He must have heard about his mom talk about the angels and the shepherds surrounding Jesus' birth. But still he did not believe. Remember when young Jesus went to the temple and amazed the teachers and came back and they said, who is this? But still James didn't believe. I kind of think that James would have been present at the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount because he seemed to know what it was he said to write the book of James. He's in the crowd somewhere, heard him teach, heard him say the most amazing things, but still James did not believe. Jesus goes out and comes back, having walked on water, fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, and raised Lazarus from the dead. And still James does not believe. He didn't believe. What happened between the Gospels and the book of James that says, I am James, a bondservant of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I think what happened was the cross. I think what happened was the flow of Jesus' blood. Because it's one thing to stand on the outside of Jesus and watch Him, and it's another thing to experience what's on the inside of Jesus, right? I think what happened was that James was struck. He didn't he wasn't he was embarrassed maybe even by his brother from the outside, but everything changes when you experience what's on the inside. And Jesus Christ came to give us his inside. His blood. Everything changes when we experience the cross. I think what happened was the cross. I think that what happened to change James was that cross that Jesus voluntarily allowed Himself to be crucified, allowed His blood to flow for, the, for our sin. Because what 
because the cross led to a series of events. I think what happened after the cross was James saw the grave and he saw Joseph of Arimathea lay him in the tomb and seal it up. And I think what happened was that James heard that his brother was alive again and he went and checked it out. And if anybody's going to know if it's Jesus or not, it's his brother. And I think what happened was that James learned of the ascension, that Jesus was taken up to the Father. And I think what happened was that James knew about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. And I think what happened was in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the birth of this thing called the church all in the name of Jesus. I think that's what happened. And all that happened because he experienced the cross. The cross. The blood. The shed blood of Jesus changed James from an embarrassed little brother to a bold bondservant of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. All through the cross. So now I'm going to ask you, have you experienced the cross? That's something only you can answer. Or are you trying to follow Jesus from the outside? Just trying to do your best reading about Him. and Man, oh man, I don't know. This is really hard. Yeah. It's impossible. You read about him, you're trying to follow him from the outside. I got news for you. It's not the teachings of Jesus Christ that will save you, it's his blood. It's not the miracles of Jesus Christ that will save you, it's his blood. You gotta, you gotta come by way of the cross, the shed. There's no other way in. By way of the have you been to the cross? Have you experienced the cross? of Jesus Christ. Or on the outside, looking at Jesus from a distance. I'm trying my best, Lord. The cross changes everything. You've been to the cross? Only you know. Have you experienced Jesus, His inside on your inside? Are you an embarrassed little brother in the house or are you a bold bondservant of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Only you know that. Some of you just now realizing all I ever did was raise my hand in a revival service or check a box on a church card. And you're just now realizing I, I've never been to the cross. I've never, I've never done that. I've never been there. I don't want anybody to doubt the legitimacy of your salvation. I'm just asking anybody who's listening, have you been to the cross? Because that's where it changes. That's where you turn from a foul-mouthed, pot-smoking young man to somebody who sits in a seminary class and says, God, I want to be your bondservant. You get there by way of the cross. It's the only way in. I see a lot of American believers or people who say they're believers are trying to come to the party, but they keep, they're avoiding the cross. They want to come to the party, but they're avoiding the cross. You know, it's at the cross where you get your clothes that let you in to the actual party. That's what Jesus taught. It's at the cross you get the right clothes for the party. 
Have you been to the cross? Some of you right now sitting there going, no, and I want to go. I, I want to make, make this right with God. I want to get right with God. I want to come to God. I want, I, want to, I want to be a Christian. I want to be one of God's children through the blood of Jesus Christ, not by just trying to read this and do it. And for you, people who just said, yeah, that's pretty much me, just for you, I'm going to ask you to do something in just a minute. For you who said, yep, I, I want to go to the cross today and become a Christian, I want you in just a minute to get up and walk through that door right there where Pastor Christian, who read a little bit earlier, super nice guy, and Elder Don Ivers will be in there waiting for you to help you experience the cross. Now, that's, what, that's the only people who get to go in that room today, okay? Don't go in there just because you want to. Go in there because you're going, that's, where I, that's, that's, what I, that's what I need. And we're also going to have prayer ministry people come up, and they'll stand along the sides and stand over there a little ways, guys, so you don't block that door. And if you've got anything else you want prayer for at all, a healing, a blessing, something that you're just seeking from God, direction, you come up to these men and women who are outside of there and just tell them they'll pray with you, okay? And God will move in your life. But that door is the door to the cross, so... Father, we invite your Holy Spirit now to come and to do the thing that only you can do, Lord. We're not fancy here. We're not good at a lot of things. We're not good at religion. We're, we're just working people, Lord, who are, who are wanting you, who have a hole in our lives without you, who have a concern about eternity, who have an awareness of our own sin. All these things are in us, Lord. And we need your cross. We need you to deal with it. We want you to deal with it. We thank you that you've dealt with it on the cross and that we can have that dealt with in our lives. I pray for every person right now who is considering walking through that door. I pray that you'll give their feet the courage to follow their hearts, Lord. But today will be a birthday in the kingdom of God for them. Holy Spirit, come. Don't let this day pass, Lord, I pray, without without these people who are thinking about it actually doing it. And change us all, Father, from distant followers to bondservants because we want to, because we love our Master. Some of us have been in the house a long time and maybe we've lost our fascination with you. Would you restore that today at the cross? We invite you to come, Lord, now. Do what you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, will you stand with me, please? And could we have some prayer team people come off to the sides and you're here to pray for anybody and remember what that door is for. If you're a person who says, today's my day, you're just feeling the weight of it and you're feeling the stirring of it, I pray that your feet will have the courage to follow your heart through that door.